we are going to somewhat continue uh, Blake's Advent series this morning. I know that uh, one of the things that you guys were doing through Advent was you were looking at the early adopters to Christianity, the people who first met Jesus, who they were, and how they responded. This morning, we're going to go to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to look at uh, Jesus's sermon in the synagogue. And what we're going to learn is why people responded the way they did. And we're going to look at the different responses here in this text to Jesus and his message. So let's read from the word of God here. This is Luke chapter 4. We're going to start on verse 16. And you can find that in your bulletin or in your Bible. Luke chapter 4, verses 16. Then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we come to you as needy people. We need you. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need your son, Jesus. We pray that you would come into this building and warm our hearts and our minds so that we might understand your things. We come to you with many needs, some spiritual, some physical, some both. We come to you with economic needs, relationship needs, health needs. Lord, you are a great physician. Please heal us. Please minister to us. Please show us your grace. Please comfort us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. 
I just finished reading a book called Seven Men and the Secrets of Their Greatness. I highly recommend it. It's written by a guy named Eric Metaxas. He also wrote Amazing Grace, uh, on which the movie uh, Amazing Grace was written. Uh, the movie Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce was, was uh, based around this book. But Eric Metaxas wrote this book called Seven Men. One of the men in the book is a man named Eric Little. And it, you might remember Eric Little, the movie Chariots of Fire was based on his life. What most people know from the movie is that Eric Little was a famous runner. He was a Scotsman uh, in the early 20th century, around the 1920s. And what you see in his life is that he had a gradual rise to stardom. People heard about him. They heard about his great running. They heard about how fast he was. They even gave him a nickname. They called him the Flying Scotchman because he was so fast. And he had a really unorthodox running style. Once he would get toward the finish line, sort of the last, the end of the race, he would cock his head back and close his eyes and open his mouth and kind of flail his arms all crazily. They actually portray that on the movie. But he became famous, and everybody liked him. Everybody was excited to watch him run. Everybody was excited because a Scotsman was fast and because a Scotsman might go to the Olympics and win a medal. But when it came time to go to the Olympics in Paris in 1924, a couple weeks before the Olympics, he found out that the race for his, uh, his race, the 100 meters, was ran on Sunday. And he refused to run on Sunday because he was a Christian and because he believed that the Sabbath day was the Lord's day and that was a day for rest and worship and not for running. And as soon as he took a stand and refused to run on Sundays, opinions about him begin to change. And you see that people were very polarized by him. Some people, Christians, admired him and respected him. And some people were curious and confused, like this guy's been training his entire life to win this medal. Why won't he run on this day? And then some people were just flat out angry. I mean, the Scottish people were mad because they wanted a medal winner, and now he was jeopardizing that. He was running for the Brits, they were mad because he was jeopardizing their gold medal hopes. They were infuriated. They were angry. And what you see is that as people kind of peeled back the layers of who Eric Liddell was, he became more and more polarizing. We see the same thing with Jesus in this text. When Jesus begins to preach and teach and heal people, people are excited. His fame grows. He gets famous. But as people begin to peel back the layers of Jesus and find out more and more about him, opinions begin to polarize. And when we look at this text, we're going to look at three different responses to Jesus and to this gospel of grace that he gives. You're going to see that some people are amazed by grace, that some people are skeptical of grace, and that some people are just downright infuriated by grace. The opinions about him begin to polarize. And I think this is very, very important for us in our culture. Because one of the things that I've learned at Oklahoma State is that people in our area in general are kind of ho-hum about Jesus. They go, ah, Jesus, he's a nice tradition. We celebrate him around Christmas. I go to church every now and then. I call myself a Christian. Eh, you know, that's it. And what you find in the Bible is you can't be ho-hum about Jesus and really get him. 
the more you dig into him, the more you find out how polarizing he is. And the more he challenges you. And he forces a response on you. So let's look at that this morning. The first thing we see here is we see that Jesus comes and he makes this incredible announcement of grace. You see it in verses 18 through 19. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He's in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. The synagogue was his home church. The Sabbath was the day when you went to church uh, for uh, God's people in the Old Testament. It was on Saturday for us in the New Testament. It's on Sunday. They had a very set structure of worship. And in that order of worship, at some point, somebody would get up and they would read and they would deliver a commentary. So on this day, Jesus was the one who was chosen to read and give the commentary. And he reads from Isaiah. He reads verses 18 through 19. I'm going to read it again in case you've forgotten. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. These verses were taken from various places in Isaiah. Isaiah 61, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 48. And what they point back to are two different parts of the Old Testament. They point back first to the Exodus. The Exodus was in, in the Old Testament when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were slaves to Pharaoh. It was a dark time. It was a black time. They were captives. They were oppressed. They were broken. God performed this miraculous exodus. He delivered them out. He saved them, brought them out, brought them into the promised land. And he gave them a command. He commanded them to observe the year of Jubilee. Okay, this, this part here where it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that's probably a reference to the year of Jubilee. And, and what was supposed to happen was this. Every 50th year, okay, three things were supposed to happen for the year of Jubilee. First, all debts were supposed to be canceled. Because what would happen is, you guys know this, in an agricultural society, you owe somebody something, you trade some grain, you trade an animal, things don't work out. All of a sudden, you're in debt to your brother and you owe them something. Well, in the year of Jubilee, all debts were canceled. The second thing was all slaves were set free. During that time, you had a form of indentured servitude. It was a form of slavery. It was different than what we had in America. And, uh, but during this time, they would let all those indentured servants go free. They were all free. Also, what would happen was all the land was released to its original owners. Sometimes in an agricultural society, for one reason or another, you've got to sell your land to somebody else to pay a debt or to do something. So at this point, the year of Jubilee, all the land goes free. And the idea is that with the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, they would remember the Exodus. They would remember that God saved them and freed them. Well, God's people here in the Old Testament always imagined that this would be political freedom. This would be national freedom, that they were the poor people, that their country would be freed from all the oppressors of Rome and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and all the bad people would be judged and wiped out. Well, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, look, here is the good news. I came from the poor. I've came to set you free. I've came to cancel your debts. I've came to wipe the slate clean. The year of Jubilee is here. It's fulfilled now. In me, 
through my person and my work. What we learn in the, in the New Testament is that what Jesus came to free people from was not just political and national slavery. It was a slavery to sin. There are three things that war against us today and war against God's people here in the New Testament, and that is Satan and sin and the flesh. And what Jesus came to do was to free people from those three things, Satan, sin, and the flesh. And through what he's saying here is that through his life and through his death and through his resurrection on the cross, he has paid all spiritual debts so that everyone who's a slave to sin, the flesh, and the devil can be let go, can be freed. This is the good news. That is the gospel of Christianity right there in a nutshell. We could stop the sermon right now, right? That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus came to free people who have been enslaved to sin, the flesh, and to Satan. And he did that through his life, death, and resurrection. But like I said earlier, we have to have a reaction to that. We just can't be ho-hum about that grace, and about that message. And so we see in this passage that there are three different reactions. The first one is, some people are amazed by this grace. Look at verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They marveled. They saw this is amazing. They knew their sin. They knew their helplessness. They knew their poverty. They knew that they were trapped, committing the same sins over and over again. They knew they were oppressed in their culture. And they said, yes, thank you. God's grace is here. I met with somebody this semester at OSU who saw the amazingness of his grace. His name was Samer. I met Samer through some of our RUF events, and Samer had a very interesting family. His mother was a Christian. His father was a Muslim. And Samer, was, Samer wasn't sure where he fit on that spectrum. And so we met, and we talked, and we kind of got to know each other. And we met the first time, and I said, Samer, you have a problem. And he said, I do? And I said, yeah, you got a problem. The problem is this. You have all these big life questions you have to answer. Where did I come from? What's my purpose? How can I be saved? And you, right now, you're saying you're, you're, not, a, you're not a Muslim, you're not a Christian. Those, those two religions are radically different. They have radically different answers to those questions. And what you've done is you've taken Islam and Christianity and formed them together into your own religion called Samarism. And he kind of like took a look back. Imagine somebody sitting across from the table saying, you've created your own religion. He was a little taken aback, which is fine. I wanted to be taken aback. I said, you have to answer all these questions from Samarism. How are you going to do that? He said, I don't know. I said, well, I want you to think about it. Let's meet again. So he left. We met the second time. We made small talk. I said, okay, have you answered your questions? He said, no, it's really hard. And I said, you're right, it is. I said, you have to pick either Islam or Christianity. They're radically different. Samarism isn't going to work. And I will tell you that of the options, I believe that Christianity is much more attractive. There's a much better answer to your questions in Christianity than Islam. I gave him a book that compares all world religions to Christianity, and I said, I want you to read this. I said, but before, before, I want you, before you go, I want you to hear the central tenet of Christianity. I want you to hear the gospel. 
And he was kind of taken aback. And I said, well, I'm not going to make you pray anything. I just want you to hear it and think about it. So I laid out the gospel. I, I discussed all the things that we just talked about here in this gospel of grace. Particularly, I told him, I said, your spiritual bank account is empty. It's empty. You are sinning against God, and your spiritual bank account is going down, and your credits don't add up to your debit, your debits. You're in debt. And what's happened in the gospel is Jesus Christ has paid your debt. He's brought you up to zero, and he's added your righteousness in so that you have an infinite amount of worth in your spiritual bank account. And Samer, like after I got done with this whole gospel presentation, he kind of looked at me and he goes, is that really what Christians believe? And I said, yeah. And this is no preacher hyperbole. I am not making this up. The next words out of his mouth were, that's amazing. I said, you're right. It is. It is amazing. This all by God's grace. You can have a spiritual bank account that is full, that all your debts have been paid based on Jesus Christ, and that makes you his son, and that makes, you, um, that makes him pleased with you. And that means that the whole worth and the whole earth and the fullness thereof is yours as his son. And I said, I want you to think about that, pray about it, let's talk about it. I don't know what he's, he's going to do. I don't know if he's going to become a Christian yet. I don't know. But there was something in him that said the gospel is amazing. Do you believe the gospel is amazing? Is it amazing to you? Are you looking at this text going, yeah, I'm poor. Yeah, I'm a slave. Yeah, I'm spiritually blind. I don't get it. And Jesus comes to you and says, I've canceled your debts. I've freed you. I've given you spiritual life. Here it is. Receive it. That's amazing. That's one way to respond to the gospel. The second way is this. You can be skeptical of grace. You can be skeptical of grace. And you see that here in verse uh, 22 at the end. It says, and they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. As they're processing who Jesus is, they're getting skeptical. Because what Jesus just said is, I'm God, I'm the prophet, I'm the ultimate prophet, I have come to give you salvation. And they're kind of going, wait a minute, aren't you Joseph's son? And they're getting skeptical. And Jesus knows their hearts, and he knows what they want. He knows that they want more signs. They want more proof. They want more evidence. They're skeptical about grace. Now I want you to know that Jesus is very patient and gracious with skeptics. We see it several times. When the angel came and announced to Mary that she was going to have Jesus, she was skeptical. She said, how do I know this is going to be true? And the angel gave her a sign. When Thomas doubted after Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus said, here, touch my hands, touch my side. He was very gracious with him. Jesus is gracious to skeptics who come with sincere questions. But we also see skeptics that don't come with sincere questions. Zechariah, when the angel announced to him that he was going to have a baby, he was like, how do I know this is going to happen? And the angel made him mute. And here we see skeptics. And, and Jesus confronts these skeptics. Why? Because what they're demanding is more and more and more evidence so that they can keep Jesus at bay. 
They're using their skepticism to give Jesus the stiff arm. Essentially, they don't want to deal with Jesus. They don't want to deal with grace. And all they're doing is creating more and more questions and demanding more and more evidence. Have you ever encountered anyone like this? Have you ever felt that in yourself, that you, you're evaluating Jesus, you're evaluating Christianity, and you have more and more questions, and you just kind of keep spinning through the same questions over and over again? Why? Why do you do that? It could be because you really don't want grace. You're really rejecting it. I have a friend that I grew up with. His name is Justin. Justin has lived a very hard life. He's been poor. He's been oppressed. He's been depressed. He is everything that this text describes. He lost his dad when he was in his 20s. He's recovering, uh, he's recovering from addictions. He's had, a, he's had a mess of a life, really. And he's kind of gone through these spiritual cycles of he'll, he'll try Christianity and he'll reject it. He'll try Christianity and he'll reject it. He's kind of your poster child for people giving tracks to. You know these people? Like every time somebody sees them, they give them a Christian track and try to get them converted. That's kind of how my friend Justin is. So occasionally, Justin will go through one of his spells where he's trying to really evaluate Christianity, and he'll come to me with a bunch of questions. And we will talk for hours, and I will graciously and generously try to answer his questions. And he just keeps spinning through all the same questions over and over again. And eventually, we kind of get to this point in the conversation where I go, Justin, you either have to believe that Jesus is who he says he is or not. You can't keep using your questions just to keep Jesus at bay. At some point, you have to believe the gospel and respond to it. If you're here and you're a skeptic and you're using your questions to keep Jesus at bay, at some point, you have to respond to the gospel. God has spoken to you through his word and through his son, and he's given you all the evidence you need. Receive that. Receive that grace. Uh, this, I guess it was recently, Newsweek came out with an article like they do every Christmas and Easter time, where they kind of like try to criticize Christianity. And uh, it was pretty slanderous, and it was a pretty poorly written article. So the president of RTS, which is one of our seminaries, wrote a rebuttal on his blog. And on his blog, he kind of evaluated the specific points of this slanderous article in Newsweek. And one of his points was this. The Newsweek article said that there are about there are tens of thousands of manuscripts that contribute to the Christian Bible. So therefore, you shouldn't believe it. And what the RTS professor said in his blog was, wait a second. First off, your journalism is bad. You are wrong. There are about 5,500 manuscripts that we use, that we put together to develop this Bible. So yeah, there's a lot. But it's not 10,000. That's bad journalism. You should have done your homework. And this is, this is not a knock against Jesus and the Bible. This is actually proof and evidence for the authority of the Bible. 5,500 manuscripts. The more manuscripts we have, the more certain we can be of the word. The more certain we can be that this is what Jesus actually said and Jesus actually did. Other great works from the same time period, we only have 10 to 20 manuscripts. Some, we only have a few. So to have 5,500 manuscripts means that, that we can be, it's evidence that we can be sure that this is God's word, that it is what he says it is, and that it's true, and we can believe it. And so if you're a skeptic, and you're curious about the strength of God's word, it is strong. 
It is held true. And if you're looking for more and more evidence, I think the ironic part about these people that want more healings is, if you look throughout the rest of Jesus' life, what did he do? He kept healing people. Over and over and over, and he kept healing people. If you're a skeptic at grace, I want you to look at the people around you who have been healed. Look at the Bible. Look at the people who have been healed. Receive that grace. Stop using your questions to keep Jesus at bay. So we have people who are amazed by grace. We have people who are skeptical of grace. And lastly, we see people who are just downright, downright infuriated by grace. And you can see this here at the past, in, in verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in this hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. He says this, and what do they try to do? They tried to kill him. <laughs> they tried to stone him. We've divulged from being amazed to being skeptical to now just downright infuriated by the grace of God. What is going on in this passage? Why are these people so infuriated? I wish I had time to tell you all the story of the widow and Naaman. But I'm just going to have to summarize it for you. The widow was during the, took place during the time of Elijah the prophet. And she was poor. She was actually poor. There was a famine. She thought she was going to die. And God sent the prophet to her and her only and said, Make me some food. And make some food for yourself, and you're going to live. And she believed him. And that's what she did. And she survived. Then you've got Naaman the Syrian. This took place during the time of Elisha the prophet. Naaman was a general of a foreign country, Syria. He had leprosy. He was a bad man. He was a murderer. He was not a good guy. He heard that Elisha could heal people, so he sent his attendant to Elisha and said, Hey, I want to be healed. Can you, send, can you come and heal me? Elisha said, No, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman said, I don't want to do that. I want to do something special. I want you to like wave your magic wand and strike me on the head and heal me. Elisha said, No, get in the river seven times. Elisha did it, and he was healed. These people heard these two stories of grace, and they were furious, and they were mad, and they were angry. Why? They were mad because the gospel of grace was going out to outsiders. The gospel of grace was going to bad people. The gospel of grace was going to different races, different economic classes, different political beliefs. The gospel of grace was going out to people that were unlike them. And they hated it. They were angry. They were infuriated by it. Why? Because they were middle class spiritually. See, these were the good people. These were the church people. They were like us. They were in church. They were trying to follow the law. They were going to church. They were trying to get, be good people. They were Jews. They were the right nation. They were the right uh, political party. They were the right everything. And the gospel is going out to the wrong people. And that makes them angry. 
I think we're closer to being like these people who are infuriated than the other people. We are the people in church. We are the religious people. We're Okies, right? We're hardworking, good, red-blooded American people that pull themselves up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps and work hard. We're middle class, right? And so it's easy for us to be infuriated when the grace of God goes out to people and we don't feel like they deserve it. Has God's grace ever infuriated you? Have you ever thought, I can't believe that person's a Christian? Or have you ever been, let me, let me try to hit a little closer to home. Have you ever been mad because your spouse did something and you know that Jesus is going to forgive them and you don't want to forgive them? Children, have you ever been mad because your parents did something that were wrong and you realized that you had to obey them anyways and God was going to forgive them? Have you ever been mad that you found out someone from the opposite political party of you was a Christian? Have you ever been mad when the guy at work who was lazy and didn't do his job got a bonus and you didn't? Has the gospel of grace ever infuriated you? If it has, the very point where it infuriated you is the very point where Jesus wants to offer you grace. You see, the people here, they're Isaiah 58 people. You guys remember what Isaiah 58 says? Isaiah 58 is an oracle that judges Israel because they don't love the poor. It says, you do your new moons, you do your Sabbath, you do your festival, but they're all worthless, meaningless religious duties because you don't love the poor. That's these people right here. But Jesus came to be the true and greater Israel. Jesus came to do what they wouldn't do. Jesus came to die for people who hated grace. He came. And that's what he did. And he died for them. There's grace even for people who are infuriated by grace. So there are three reactions. You can be amazed by grace. You can be skeptical of grace. You can be infuriated by grace. And I will tell you that it's okay to be at all three at some point. But we want to move towards being amazed by grace. We want to move towards hearing the good news and believing the good news. But what's going to be the key? What's going to be the difference? How are you going to move from these other places into being amazed? You will only be amazed by grace if you know how poor spiritually you really are. To the degree that you see your spiritual poverty, you will be amazed by grace. If you don't believe that you're that poor and you're that broken and you're that helpless, then you won't be that amazed. And you won't receive Jesus. If you believe that you're a broken sinner and that your only hope is Jesus, then you're going to be amazed by grace. You're going to be blown away. It's going to captivate you. It's going to ravage you. You are going to You're going to love Jesus, and you're going to cry, and you're going to weep because of grace. So let me give you a few practical points to help you here um, work this grace deeper in your hearts. 
How can we be amazed by grace and experience this jubilee that Jesus has to offer us? The first thing you have to do is you have to admit your poverty. You have to admit that you are spiritually bankrupt and that you need Jesus. That all of your religious works are filthy rags. That you don't understand the grace of God the way you think you do. That your skepticism has pushed Jesus away. That you have been infuriated by the grace of God. That you've been infuriated by the gospel going out. You have to admit that. And you come to Jesus with it. And you believe that he died for that sin. That he rose for that sin. And he has forgiven you because of that sin. And you have to receive the grace of God. You have to believe it. And you have to act on it. Then you have to continue to proclaim that good news to yourself. Because you're going to forget. You're going to leave here and you're going to forget. You have to keep proclaiming the good news to yourself over and over and over again. And as a church, you guys have to keep proclaiming this gospel of grace week in and week out. Let Blake preach grace every Sunday. Because every Sunday you will need it and every Sunday you will forget it. Make it your mission in 2015 and beyond to, to continue to proclaim the good news of the gospel of grace every Sunday. And continue to look at Jesus and look at what he did for you. And then you got to realize that everything you have, everything your father has is yours. Right? In Matthew 4, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you're poor in spirit, if you're poor and you come to Jesus without poverty, guess what you inherit? The kingdom of heaven. So that makes you radically generous with the gospel. That makes you radically generous with your money. That makes you radically loving to other people who are not like you. How do you know that you're being amazed by grace? You become generous. You start to realize that everything you have is the Lord's and that everything you have was given to you by him. And you began to give it away. And you want to see more and more people come to the gospel. You want rich people and poor people in your congregation. You want black people and white people to hear the gospel. You want Republicans and Democrats to hear the gospel. You want Owasso and Union to hear the gospel. You want OU and OSU to hear the gospel. Because it's so good and it's so amazing. And you realize that all you have has been given to you by Jesus. And so you just want to give it away. To the degree that you see how poor you are and how good this news is, you are going to be generous and loving to others. And you're going to be loved by God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this gracious text. Lord, you are so good to us. And we don't even realize it. I pray that you would continue to show us just how poor we are without you and how rich we are in you. And I pray that that gospel would change us and that gospel would compel us to go forth and to love our neighbors and love the city of Owasso and love sinners just like ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.